this week, Parshat Vayigash includes, among a lot of dramatic things and some bizarre things, when I say dramatic, I think notably of the opening part of Vayigash, which is Yehuda's challenge to Yosef and that whole very teary uh, reunion. And then, of course, the reunion later on when Yaakov comes down and, and sees Yosef. Uh, some strange things, which is the end of the parsha, with that whole description of the economic uh, policies of Yosef vis-a-vis Mitzrayim, to which our response is, who cares? And that's a piece by itself. We've talked about that in the past. And in the middle is a section which we would consider to be one of the humdrum sections. It's the kind of thing that we would expect maybe in Parsha Bereshit, where it, which has a list of generations, or the end of Noah with the table of nations, we have a detailed list of B'nai Israel who come down to Mitzrayim. Parenthetically, this list spurs the opening parshanut in Sefer Shmot, if you recall, because Elish Shmot B'nai Israel by Mitzrayim, and it lists just the first generation, Reuven, Shimon, etc. And on the spot, Rashi asks the question, which is why count them again? They've already counted them here in and Rashi gives the answer he does, Ramban gives the answer he does, others give their answers, uh, but this is the list. Now, this list, uh, which looks fairly innocent on uh, on the face of it, um, actually has three different anomalies to it. Uh, one internal, one sort of external, and one extrinsic. And without trying to, to belabor the terms and why each one fits, I'll explain when we go through the list, and this is a very well-known issue, when we go through the list, we count all of the people, and we end up with uh, 66, and then you add Yosef, Menashe, and Ephraim, and you end up with 69. And yet, the count is 70. Right? So where do you get number 70 from? So that's problem number one. Uh, problem number two, and these the solutions to these problems are not necessarily interrelated, but I just want to pose what the problems are. The second problem is if you look at the list, you will see that even though it's introduced with the phrase that banav uvnev banav ito, and then in the blue, as you can see in Pasuk uh, Zion, bnotav uvnot banav, which means Yaakov's daughters and granddaughters, right, in the plural. And yet when we go through, we find one daughter and one granddaughter. Now, besides the textual problem, there's also a probability problem, which is, what's the likelihood that Yaakov has 13 kids and only one's a girl? Certainly possible. But then, what's the likelihood that Yaakov has 58, sorry, 57 grandchildren and only one's a granddaughter? The statistical probability is very low. All right, somebody there is uh, needs to be, sorry, some interference. Okay. Um, and so that's the second question, is what's with the daughters? There's a third question, which is extrinsic, because it's not part of the text itself, but nonetheless, it's worth looking at. As you can see in the bottom half of the first page, you have the same text that we just looked at here, except that it's not in Hebrew, it's in Greek. We're looking at the Septuagint. And for your benefit, I've highlighted the names that you know. The first name that's highlighted is Reuben, and then Simeon, and then Louis, and Yuda, etc. And then the blue is Dinan, and then Sarah, which is Serach, right? Very nice. 
But the interesting thing is that you then have, and I bolded them, five more names that don't show up on our list. And these names are Machir and Gilad and Sutalam, which is Shutelach, evidently, and Ta'am, which seems to be Tacham, and Edem, which is unclear who that is. One of them is a son of Menashe, Machir, and Machir's son, Gilad, are listed on this list. And Ephraim has a son, Shutelach and Tacham, and one of Shutelach's son, who is Edem here, are listed. And true to that list, the total given here is Abdomekonta, which is 70, Penta, and 5. In other words, 75. So then in the Septuagint version of this story, there is one verse which is hugely expanded, and that is, it turns out to be verse 19, which has lists um, uh, Yosef's kids, and also the total at the end of 75. Parenthetically, I didn't have room for it on the page, at the beginning of Shemot, when it says, it just lists the first generation, but afterwards it says, Shivim Nefesh, in the Septuagint it's 75, not 70. So there's some sort of tradition of 75. Now, we have to we have three different strange things going on, and uh, we're going to address them separately and see if there's any weave that will connect them. Could be, could be not. Important to note from the get-go that the tradition of 70 coming down was an ancient tradition. I say ancient tradition in the sense that when Moshe Rabbeinu was giving his farewell speech in Sefer Dvarim and wants to point out the great kindnesses that HaKadosh Baruch was done with Bnei Israel, one of the things he says at the end of Perak Yod in Dvarim, in the middle of Parshat Ekev, is, B'shivim nefesh yardu avotecha that Hashem took you down, or your ancestors went down to Mitzrayim as 70, and now you are as numerous as the stars in the heaven. Now, whenever we get to a number like 70, we can always make the argument that it's a round number, and it's around 70. And certainly for rhetorical purposes, when Moshe is praising Hashem to say, you came down with 70, or it's 69, Asma, all right, 72, Asma, 70, it's close enough, because the point that Moshe is making is you were a small group, and now you are a huge nation. That's something that we can that we can live with. However, Chazal are not comfortable with that. And as a result of that, the Midrash offers a number of answers to our first question, which is, if you count and you end up with 69, where's number 70? And there are a lot of answers that are given. One of them became very popular because Rashi quoted in his Perush, and that becomes the answer that most people will give you on the spot. And you see it here from Breshit Rabbah. Because you have to remember, in the original count right here, it lists, if you take a look at Pasuk Chaf Vav here in front of you, meaning besides the, their, the son's wives, Ruven's wife, etc., there's 66 of Yaakov's descendants who come down to Mitzrayim. And then, Bnei Yosef, and Yosef has two kids, which then comes to 70. So there's a more difficult way to read that, which is, there's 66 plus two kids, 66 and two is 70, that's bad math. Or, 
that there's 66 plus Yosef and the two kids. 66 and 3 is 70. Well, that's also bad math. And the Midrash comments, assuming the, the latter, that can you ever imagine somebody giving its friend 66 glasses and then three more glasses and saying there's 70? In other words, the Midrash is taking this count very exactly and not as a rough number. The answer, the first answer given, famous, and that's based on the Pasuk that are referring to Yocheved, that she was born in Mitzrayim, but she was conceived on the road. And so she was born right as soon as they entered, so she's not listed, but she's number 70. That, of course, becomes very problematic. Uh, the Ibn Ezra on the spot uh, is not comfortable with it because he says, based on that, Yocheved would have been 130 years old when she gave birth to Moshe. And if we make a big deal about Sarat, age 90 giving birth, why doesn't the text mention Yocheved is even more miraculous? And it is indeed a, a problematic thing. So, But Yocheved is not the only answer. As you can see in the Midrash, And that, by the way, is the direction that the Rashbam and the Ben Ezra and other Pashtanim take, because look at the list carefully. The list lists Yotzei Yerech Yaakov, which means literally the fruit of the loins of Yaakov. In other words, Yaakov's descendants. And that's what Pasuk Chavav says. His descendants, not including his descendants' spouses, meaning only bloodline, is 66. And Bnei Yosef, which is Yosef was already in Mitzrayim, and two kids, which means Yaakov has three descendants in Mitzrayim, 66 and three is 69. And then the last line is Kol Anefes the Veit Yaakov Abamitzrayim but the house of Yaakov is seventy because Yaakov is number seventy, and that seems to be the simplest way to read it. And that again is the way that the Pashtunim read it. Um, the the there are other suggestions made which seem to be a little bit more difficult, such as Yeshomim Hakadosh Baruch Hu Hishlimim Mehematamiyan, kind of reminiscent of those sugyot in the seventh parak of, of Brachot about uh, two people on Shabbat making a mezuman, etc. And um, then there's a, yet other suggestions which are difficult because they include somebody, two different people who are actually listed among the, seven, of the 69, and to say that somehow they count to 70, uh, and one of them is Hushim ben Dan. Right, in any case, the different answers that are given, those are the suggestions. But again, the far more exotic questions to deal with are the issue of the daughters and the issue of the of the 75. So let's start with the daughters. Again, I wanted to quickly just touch upon the issue of the 69 and the 70 to show you that there, there really is a concern, even though we could look at the Pasuk in Dvarim as being uh, just uh, homiletic and therefore 70 shouldn't be taken too carefully. The Midrash takes it exactly because of the count. And therefore, it searches for who number 70 is and provides several different answers and different approaches. When we look at the daughters, we have a problem because not only here does it say that Yaakov and his daughters and his daughter's daughters came down to Mitzrayim, we have a similar phrase earlier on in Source 4. When Yaakov gets the bloody coat and is convinced that Yosef has died and starts mourning, Vayakum banav v'chob 
his sons and his daughters get up to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted, etc. Which means that already earlier on, in Yaakov's household, we get the image of there being sons and daughters. Now Rashi on the spot says, Benotav refers to Kalotav, his daughters-in-law, a person is not hesitant to refer to his daughter-in-law as his daughter. And certainly in beautiful families, that, that could be the case. Um, however, it is difficult because it should have been said or really seems to indicate daughters. But when we have that here, not only do we have benotav, but we also have benot banav. Now, what does that mean again that he's going to say that his grand his grandson's wives also? It becomes difficult. And for that reason, we find some achronim, uh, dafka, pick up on this issue. And, the, and first of all, in, in parallel, in Italy and in Eastern Europe at the same time, both at the end of the 19th century, Shadal and the Nitziv came to the same conclusion. And that conclusion was that Yaakov had daughters. Yaakov had daughters not only because of the, uh, of the force of the uh, statistical issue, uh, sorry, not only because of the, of the psukim that indicate Benotav, but also because what's the likelihood of there being so many with so few sons? Um, uh, if you take a look... <clears throat> Um, at uh, both both the and, and Shadal bring this up, right? And they then have to explain if that's the case that there are more daughters in the family and more granddaughters in the family. Why aren't they mentioned? So um, they he he says the following, and the Shadal says the following: Velohiskir. In other words, he's saying the starting point is not we assume everybody's mentioned and why are they left out. We assume only the males are mentioned. And the question is, why is Dina, why are Dina and Sarach mentioned? So he says, Because Dina had a very famous story happened that revolved around her, that happened in Shem. And therefore she's mentioned. Reality is, when you look through the stories, the narratives in Breshit, the only people mentioned are the males. The only reason that, um, for instance, Yehuda, the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Yehuda marries a girl. What's the girl's name? We don't know. We know her father's name. We don't know her name. Her father's name is Shua. She's Bat Shua. Right? Just like, uh, uh, what's Shimshon's uh, father's name? Manoach. What's his mother's name, who's the more important person in the story? Mrs. Manoach. That's it. And then he says, therefore, Dina, Now that may be the key to understanding the Midrashic tradition that Serach Bat Asher lived a very long time and knew where Yosef's bones were and all of those things, the harp, the whole story. Um, because why would she be mentioned here if there are other granddaughters? It must be because she is somehow unique. Right. Um, he then makes another another point. Venerali, this is Shadal. He bemet He said Yaakov and his sons all had daughters also. Why? 
Now he makes a claim here, which seems to have nothing to back it up, which is to say that Ruvain married, uh, let's say, Don's daughters, and that uh, and that Don married uh, Levi's daughters, etc. In other words, they all married within the tribe, within the clan. But then he brings a little bit of a proof, which is that who did Amram marry? Amram married his aunt. Of course, post Matan Torah, that would be an erva, but. People certainly married within the clan, right? Who did uh, who did Aaron marry? Aaron married Aaron married Elisheva, who is Batamiadat. Uh, In other words, people are marrying within the clan even before there's officially a quote unquote Am Israel. And he says, therefore, there's no reason to count them. Who are they really counting? They're really counting heads of families. And what then becomes interesting is that heads of families are now not defined by the first generation but by the second. Meaning, Reuven is the head of a family, but so is Chetzon and Chamul, his sons. And Yehuda is the head of a family, but so is, and this is tricky with Yehuda, so is uh, Shela, Zerach, and Peretz, not Aaron Onan. Although they're listed here, they're listed, and then they die, so they don't count. And instead, Chetzon and Chamul count in. And so, that's the way that uh, the Chadal deals with the issue. Um and then Atziv raises another interesting possibility. Uh, first of all, he says that the Shivim, and this is the Atziv, that the Shivim here relates actually to a pasuk that we have that come, Emir Tzashem, come in the fall. We're going to look at this from a different angle because it's an, it, it is an extraordinarily multifaceted pasuk and difficult pasuk. And that is, Dvarim Lamed Bet Pasuk Chet, at the beginning of Hazinu, which means when God first divided the nations up, he set up the boundaries of the nations based on the number of B'nai Israel. And if you look at the tablet of the nations in Breshit Yod, you'll see that there are 70 nations in the world. Say, so, oh, God separated 70 nations to correspond with the 70 of B'nai Israel. When were B'nai Israel 70? when they came down to Mitzrayim. Which means that there's an interest in have, making sure the number 70, so therefore we're going to count or not count based on making that work. And that Siv is committed to that relationship between this number of those coming down and that Pasuk in Dvarim. And so therefore he, 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 he forges that connection. All right, and then he says that the whole reason he doesn't even take the gender divide says the whole reason that anybody's mentioned here is because these were extraordinary people. Shimon and Levi being able to massacre an entire town, etc. Talking about how great these people were, and everybody else was sort of normal, and so therefore they're not listed. But you have, again, at the same time, at the end of the 19th century, two Mefarshim coming from different schools and different approaches, um, but at the same time, looking at the issue of the daughters and saying, it's just not possible for there to be only one daughter and one granddaughter in this entire clan. And they come up with parallel, but not exactly the same explanations for the Benotav and for the who's, who, who is in this family. The last thing I want to touch on, and again, this is almost like a very quick survey of the oddities of this count. So the first oddity we looked at is the famous one, which is, 69, 70, how do we rec- reconcile that? What I mentioned at the beginning is there's one quick way to reconcile it, which is to say 69, 70, Azma. 
we know that the, the Tanakh, we use typological numbers, and sometimes the typological numbers are not exact, and they're there more for their image than anything else. And the classic example, of course, is when Yirmiyahu says that there will be Galut for 70 years. But if you count it from the time of Chorban Beit HaMikdash until Koresh's announcement we could come back, you actually have less than 50 years. But 70 years is a tkufa, so we understand that. And Tanakh uses typological numbers often. And yet, the Balei Midrash are not willing to give up even one iota on that and uh, and therefore stick to the issue of 69. It must be actually be 70. Who's number 70? And they come up with a number of different uh, uh, different suggestions. We then looked at the issue of the daughters here. We saw that nobody seemed to wake up to the issue or be bothered by the issue of the daughters, uh, except really tangentially and saying daughters could refer to granddaughters, could refer to daughters and not set her up. Until the 19th century, where in parallel to Achronim, look at the text and say there must have been more daughters and come up with the answers they give. But this is, a, this is an, an issue that I've not really seen addressed very much, which is, you take a look at the Septuagint, so very, very quick history. The Septuagint, as we all know, is the first translation of the Torah into any other language. And there are numerous traditions of how this thing happened. Um, it seemed to have been commissioned by um, Ptolemy Philadelphus, maybe the second, maybe in around the year 285 BCE, perhaps in Egypt. Um, and it was, according to one tradition for his own personal use, according to another tradition, it was because the library in Alexandria did not have a copy of the Law of Moses, and there was an interest. The librarian actually approached him and said, we're missing this, and he had it commissioned. Numerous traditions, even within our own literature, there are numerous traditions about who was involved in this. Was it five Zikanim or 70 or 72 Zikanim? Did they know what they were doing or did they not know what they were doing until they were put into the separate rooms? Were they given feasts and a great opportunity or was it something more like, uh, like labor? In any case, we have this translation of the Torah into Greek. And for the most part, the Septuagint, is an accurate translation of what we have in our Torah. And here and there, there are all sorts of interesting differences and changes. At some point, maybe we'll do a, a piece on more on the traditions of the Septuagint and the anywhere between 10, 13, or 15 changes that Chachamim made, Elohim Barab Reshit, etc., and the rabbit problem, interesting stuff. But once in a while, you bump into something in the Septuagint, which is like a huge difference, not just one word or a name or something of that sort. And uh, and so here, you suddenly have in the Pasuk regarding uh, Yosef, Yosef is Yosef, and in, the, in our text, it's Ephraim and Menashe, and that's it. Just like you have with most of the sons, where all you have is the second generation. It's only in the case, really, of Yehuda that you have a third generation. Suddenly here, you have a third and even fourth generation. You have Ephraim and Menashe, and then in the Greek, you have that Menashe, um, by the way, here it says Menashe had a, uh, an Aram, Aram, Aramean uh, concubine, Palake Esira, Syrian. Uh, he had Machir, and Machir then gave birth to Gilad, and then Ephraim, the brother of Menashe, had Shutelach and Tacham, and Shutelach's son is Edem. Right? And then it goes on, and the rest of the list is the same. And the only difference is at the end we get with 75. 
So where does this come from? So I'd like to just make the following suggestion. If you take a look at the end of Sefer Bereshit, you find an interesting little note. It says, Yosef is now on his deathbed, Kilo. Yosef Lefraim B'nei Shileishim. What does that mean? That means that Yosef saw Ephraim's grandsons. B'nei Shileishim, Ephraim, his son, and his son. And then Gam B'nei Machir Ben Menashe, you'll do Abike Yosef. You'll do Abike Yosef as an idiom, for they were born while he was still alive. Which means the sons of Machir Ben Menashe. So now, what do we know about Machir? We know a lot about Machir. Machir is the firstborn son of Menashe. And Machir has, is the family, you know, we always talk about uh, two and a half tribes on the other side of the Ardain. It's not really two and a half tribes. It's Reuven God and the Machir. The Machiri are on the other side of the Ardain. The rest of Menashe is on the, on the east, on the west bank. And so Machir, if you take a look here in Bamidbar in the census, Right? And the Giladi family is a very significant family. And by the way, their inheritance is in Haragilad, which means the family had some tradition. They knew they were going to be inheriting there, and they named their kid. In Egypt, they named their kid Gilad. They named it good. In the meantime, we also have the family line of Ephraim, and we're told in Bamidbar that Ephraim has a son named Shutelach, and Shutelach, um, um, and there's yet another son, Tachan, and one of B'nai Shutelach is somebody named Iran. So I'd like to just suggest, possibly, maybe, that what the authors of the Septuagint did, and I'm taking this in one direction, in a minute I'll share what the other direction is, but this is the direction I'd prefer to go in, is that the authors of the Septuagint wanted to add in based on the fact that the text in Bereshit tells us that before Yosef died, which means before we open a page in Sefer Shemot, which takes place after Yosef died, Machir had already given, had been born, and Gilad had already been born, and Shutelach had already been born to Ephraim, and Shutelach's son had already been born, because the text tells us that. Yosef saw Bnei Machir Memenasheh, and Yosef saw Bnei Shilashim, Shilashim Ephraim. And so therefore the text wants to say, what is this list? Is this just a list of those who are on their way down to Mitzrayim? Or is this list setting us up for who's in Mitzrayim when Bereshit closes? And the Septuagint, taking the latter approach, adds in these few names and ends up with 75 because the text testified about these people being born in Yosef's life. There is yet another direction that probably most people would take in this, but I'm going to mention it briefly, but tell you that I'm, it's not the direction I want to take, which is to say that the, and this is in general, whenever you look at the Septuagint and you see something deviating from what we have in our text, as you say, perhaps they were working from a text of the Torah that had a different text, different, different words, and they're translating off of that. And there are many examples of that later in Tanakh, where that certainly is something to consider. One of the most famous examples is if you look in uh, the Septuagint on Psalms, and you see that when you get to Ashrei, there's a, there is a Nun Pasuk. The question is, where did that come from? Right? And that's something for perhaps a different Shior. But in general, whenever you see something in the Septuagint, and, or in any of the early translations or versions, 
in which the text is different than what we're we're used to, the two directions to go are either editing or else a different vorlage, a different source text. So I'm I'm suggesting the editing is that what they're doing is they're adding in and saying the list that we have here of those who came down to Mitzrayim is not the list of those who descended, but rather a list of those who were there when the work of Breshid closed off. Now, I'll tell you why that may be something that we almost have to do. Please take a look here at our text, at the Torah. Look at Pasuk Yod Bet, and you're going to see something very difficult, which I think is what drove the translators into Greek, into doing what, what they did. Uvnei Yehuda, Er ve'onan v'sheilah That's the five children that Yehuda bore, although they weren't alive at the same time. Vayamot er ve'onan be'eretz kanan, er onan died. Vayuvnei feretz chetzon v'chamur. Now, let's just do this. When did Yehuda get married? So it seems that Yehuda got married. It seems from the text that Yehuda got married after Yosef was sold, correct? So after Yosef is gone, then Vayered Yehuda me'etachav, and Yehuda gets married. <laughs> Yehuda gets married, and Er is born, and Onan is born, and Shelah is born, and Shelah is significantly younger. Er is old enough to get married, and Er is bad, and God kills him. Onan is old enough to do Yibum, and he doesn't do that right, and God kills him. And a little time passes, and Shelah now reaches the age of whatever the age of maturity is, and Tamar sees that um, that she's not going to be married to him, and she does what she does. And the result of that, nine months later, is Peretz and Zerach. Now, how many years could that have been? Remember, the whole time between Yosef being sold and the brothers coming down to Mitzrayim, at the very most, is 22. If you do the math, you'll see that even those events, fitting them into 22 years is difficult. That's why the Rabag says that Yehuda's marriage is actually before the sale of Yosef. But it still leaves us with a big problem is, here we have Peretz's sons being counted as coming down. So perhaps what this means, and I believe Kasuta goes in this direction, is that Chetzor and Chamul are born in Mitzrayim. They're born in Mitzrayim, and they're listed here because they're Ki'ilu making up for Aaron Onan, who are dead. But the idea is that, therefore, you look at this list and you say, this list cannot be names of people who descended to Mitzrayim, because there are people here who could not have been born before they got to Mitzrayim. And if that's the case, then we take a look at Yosef and Ephraim, Ephraim and Menashe's kids, and realize they should be on this list as well, because they're also part of the group that was there when the curtain closed on Sefer Breshit, before opening up on a whole new chapter in Sefer Shmot. A chapter, shall we say, in our history. So, three different anomalies about the about the the list of those descending uh, to Mitzrayim, and uh, hopefully uh, gives us something to think about. And I'm interested in hearing from anybody any uh, any other insights you might have into any of these things: the sixty nine versus seventy, the seventy versus seventy five, and the very sparse mention of daughters uh, on this list. The sure was given in memory of my mother, whose your side is tonight. I'm hard to believe that it's been 10 years. And who was somebody who uh, had a great love, not only for Mikra, but for really investigating and thinking about Mikra 
in serious ways, and I believe that she, this shiur is very fitting, uh, a memory of uh, my mom, Miriam Bat Yitzchak Verivka, Zichra Livracha.